Chapter Two of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mary Rohde. A Popular History of Ireland From the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics. Book Two by Thomas Darcy McGee. Chapter Two kings of the ninth century continued neal the third malachy the first hugh the seventh when in the year eight hundred and thirty three neal the third received the usual homage and hostages which ratified his title of ardrich the northern invasion had clearly become the greatest danger that ever yet had threatened the institutions of erin Attacks, at first predatory and provincial, had so encouraged the genteel leaders of the second generation that they began to concert measures and combine plans for conquest and colonization. To the Vikings of Norway, the fertile island with which they were now so familiar, whose woods were bent with the autumnal load of acorns, mast, and nuts, and filled with numerous herds of swine, their favorite food, whose pleasant meadows were well stored with beeves and oxen, whose winter was often as mild as their northern summer, and whose waters were as fruitful in fish as their own Lofoden frites. To these men this was a prize worth fighting for, and for it they fought long and desperately. King Nial inherited a disputed sovereignty from his predecessor, and the southern analysts say he did homage to Philem of Munster, while those of the north, and with them the majority of historians, reject this statement as exaggerated and untrue. He certainly experienced continual difficulty in maintaining his supremacy, not only from the Prince of Cashel, but from lords of lesser grade, like those of Ossory and Ulidia, so that we may say, while he had the title of King of Ireland, he was, in fact, King of no more than Leothcon, or the northern half. The central province, Meath, long deserted by the monarchs, had run wild into independence, and was parcelled out between two or three chiefs, descendants of the same common ancestor as the kings, but distinguished from them by the tribe name of the southern High Nial. Of these heads of new houses, by far the ablest and most famous was Melachlin, who dwelt near Mullingar, and lorded it over western Meath, a name with which we shall become better acquainted presently. It does not clearly appear that Melachlin was one of those who actively resisted the prerogatives of this monarch, though others of the southern High Nial did at first reject his authority, and were severely punished for their insubordination the year after his assumption of power. In the fourth year of Nial III, A.D. 837, arrived the great Norwegian fleet of a hundred and twenty sail, whose commanders first attempted, on a combined plan, the conquest of Erin. 
Sixty of the ships entered the Boyne, the other sixty the Liffey. This formidable force, according to all Irish accounts, was soon after united under one leader, who is known in our annals as Turges or Turgesius, but of whom no trace can be found under that name in the chronicles of the Northmen. Every effort to identify him in the records of his native land has hitherto failed, so that we are forced to conclude that he must have been one of those wandering sea-kings whose fame was won abroad, and whose story, ending in defeat, yet entailing no dynastic consequences on his native land, possessed no national interest for the authors of the Old Norse sagas. To do all the Scandinavian chroniclers justice, in cases which come directly under their notice, they acknowledge defeat as frankly as they claim victory proudly. Equal praise may be given to the Irish analysts in recording the same events, whether at first or second hand. In relation to the campaigns and sway of Turgesius, the difficulty we experience in separating what is true from what is exaggerated or false is not created for us by the analysts, but by the bards and storytellers, some of whose inventions, adopted by Combrensis, have been too readily received by subsequent writers. For all the acts of national importance with which his name can be intelligibly associated, we prefer to follow in this, as in other cases, the same sober historians who condense the events of years and generations into the shortest space and the most matter-of-fact expression. If we were to receive the chronology while rejecting the embellishments of the bards, Turgesius must have first come to Ireland with one of the expeditions of the year 820, since they speak of him as having been the scourge of the country for seventeen years before he assumed the command of the forces landed from the fleet of 837, nor is it unreasonable to suppose that an accurate knowledge of the country, acquired by years of previous warfare with its inhabitants, may have been one of the grounds upon which the chief command was conferred on Turgesius. This knowledge was soon put to account. Dublin was taken possession of, and a strong fort, according to the Scandinavian method, was erected on the hill where now stands the castle. This fort, and the harbor beneath it, were to be the rendezvous and arsenal for all future operations against Leinster, and the foundation of foreign power then laid, continued in foreign hands, with two or three brief intervals, until transferred to the Anglo-Norman chivalry three centuries and a half later. Similar lodgment was made at Waterford, and a third was attempted at Limerick, but at this period without success. The Danish fort at the latter point is not thought older than the year 855. But Turgesius, if indeed the independent acts of contemporary and even rival chiefs be not too often attributed to him, was not content with fortifying the estuaries of some principal rivers. 
he established inland centers of operation, of which the cardinal one was on Loch Ree, the expansion of the Shannon, north of Athlone. Another was at a point called Lindwakil on Loch Niach. On both these waters were stationed fleets of boats, constructed for that service and communicating with the forts on shore. On the eastern border of Loch Ree, in the midst of its meadows, stood Clonmacnois, rich with the offerings and endowments of successive generations. Here, three centuries before, in the heart of the desert, St. Kieran had erected, with his own hands, a rude sylvan cell, where, according to the allegory of tradition, the first monks who joined him were the fox, the wolf, and the bear. But time had wrought wonders on that hallowed ground, and a group of churches, at one time as many as ten in number, were gathered within two or three acres, round its famous schools and presiding cathedral. Here it was Turgesius made his usual home, and from the high altar of the cathedral his unbelieving queen was accustomed to issue her imperious mandates in his absence. Here, for nearly seven years, this conqueror and his consort exercised their far-spread and terrible power. According to the custom of their own country, a custom attributed to Odin as its author, they exacted from every inhabitant subject to their sway a piece of money annually, the forfeit for the non-payment of which was the loss of the nose, hence called nose-money. Their other exactions were a union of their own northern imposts, with those levied by the chiefs whose authority they had superseded, but whose prerogatives they asserted for themselves. Free quarters for their soldiery, and a system of inspection extending to every private relation of life, were the natural expedients of a tyranny so odious. On the ecclesiastical order especially their yoke bore with peculiar weight, since, although avowed pagans, they permitted no religious house to stand, unless under an abbot, or at least an aeronach, or treasurer, of their approval. Such is the complete scheme of oppression presented to us, that it can only be likened to a monstrous spider-web spread from the center of the island over its fairest and most populous districts, Glendalough, Ferns, Castle Dermid, and Kildare in the east, Lismore, Cork, Clornfert in the southern country, Dundalk, Bangor, Derry, and Armagh in the north, all groaned under this triumphant despot or his colleagues. In the meanwhile, King Nial seems to have struggled resolutely with the difficulties of his lot, and in every interval of insubordination to have struck boldly at the common enemy. But the tide of success for the first few years after 837 ran strongly against him. The joint hosts from the Liffey and the Boyne swept the rich plains of Meath, and in an engagement at Invernabark, the present Bray, gave such a complete defeat to the southern Hy Nial clans, 
as prevented them making head again in the field until some summers were passed and gone. In this campaign, Saxalvi, who is called the chief of the foreigners, was slain. And to him, therefore, if to any commander-in-chief, Togesius must have succeeded. The shores of all the inland lakes were favorite sites for the raths and churches, and the beautiful country around Loch Erne shared the fiery ordeal which blazed on Loch Rie and Loch Niach. In 839, the men of Connaught also suffered a defeat equal to that experienced by those of Meath in the previous campaign. But more unfortunate than the Methians, they lost their leader and other chiefs on the field. In 840, Ferns and cork were given to the flames, and the fort at Lindwachil, or Maheralin, poured out its ravages in every direction over the adjacent country, sweeping off flocks, herds, and prisoners, laymen and ecclesiastics, to their ships. The northern depredators counted among their captives several bishops and learned men, of whom the abbot of Clohair and the lord of Galtrim are mentioned by name. Their equally active colleagues of Dublin and Waterford took captive Hugh, abbot of Clonagh, and Foranan, archbishop of Armagh, who had fled southwards with many of the relics of the metropolitan church, escaping from one danger only to fall into another a little farther off. These prisoners were carried into Munster, where Abbot Hugh suffered martyrdom at their hands, but the archbishop, after being carried to their fleet at Limerick, seems to have been rescued or ransomed, as we find him dying in peace at Armagh in the next reign. The martyrs of these melancholy times were very numerous, but the exact particulars being so often unrecorded, it is impossible to present the reader with an intelligible account of their persons and sufferings. When the Anglo-Normans taunted the Irish that their church had no martyrs to boast of, they must have forgotten the exploits of their Norse kinsmen about the middle of the century. But the hour of retribution was fast coming round, and the native tribes, unbound, divided, confused, and long unused to foreign war, were fast recovering their old martial experience, and something like a politic sense of the folly of their border feuds. Nothing perhaps so much tended to arouse and combine them together as the capture of the successor of St. Patrick, with all his relics, and his imprisonment among a pagan host in Irish waters. National humiliation could not much farther go, and as we read, we pause, prepared for either alternative, mute submission or a brave uprising. King Nial seems to have been, in this memorable year, 843, defending as well as he might his ancestral province, Ulster, against the ravagers of Loch Niach and still another party whose ships flocked into Loch Swilly. In the ancient plain of Moynith, watered by the little river Finn, the present barony of Rapho, he encountered the enemy, 
and according to the annals, a countless number fell, victory being with Nial. In the same year, or the next, Turgesius was captured by Melachlin, lord of Westmeath, apparently by stratagem, and put to death by the rather novel process of drowning. The bardic tale told to Cambrensis, or parodied by him from an old Greek legend, of the death by which Turgesius died, is of no historical authority. According to this tale, the tyrant of Lochri conceived a passion for the fair daughter of Melochlin, and demanded her of her father, who, fearing to refuse, affected to grant the infamous request, but dispatched in her stead to the place of assignation twelve beardless youths, habited as maidens, to represent his daughter and her attendants. By these maskers the Norwegian and his boon companions were assassinated, after they had drank to excess and laid aside their arms and armor. For all this superstructure of romance, there is neither groundwork nor license in the facts themselves, beyond this, that Turgesius was evidently captured by some clever stratagem. We hear of no battle in Meath or elsewhere against him immediately preceding the event, nor is it likely that a secondary prince, as Melachlin then was, could have hazarded an engagement with the powerful master of Lochri. If the local traditions of West Meath may be trusted, where Cambrensis is rejected, the Norwegian and Irish principals in the tragedy of Loch Owell were on visiting terms just before the denouement, and many curious particulars of their peaceful but suspicious intercourse used to be related by the modern storytellers around Castle Pollard. The anecdote of the rookery, of which Melachlin complained, and the remedy for which his visitors suggested to be to cut down the trees and the rooks would fly, has a suspicious look of the tall poppies of the Roman and Grecian legend. Two things only do we know for certain about the matter. Firstly, that Turgesius was taken and drowned in Loch Owell in the year 843 or 844. And secondly, that this catastrophe was brought about by the agency and order of his neighbor Melachlin. The victory of Moynith and the death of Turgesius were followed by some local successes against other fleets and garrisons of the enemy. Those of Lochri seemed to have abandoned their fort and fought their way, gaining in their retreat the only military advantage of that year, towards Sligo, where some of their vessels had collected to bear them away. Their colleagues of Dublin, undeterred by recent reverses, made their annual foray southward into Ossory in 844, and immediately we find King Nial moving up from the north to the same scene of action. In that district he met his death in an effort to save the life of Agila or common servant. The river of Calan being greatly swollen, the Gila, in attempting to find a ford, was swept away in its turbid torrent. 
the king entreated some one to go to his rescue, but as no one obeyed, he generously plunged in himself and sacrificed his own life in endeavoring to preserve one of his humblest followers. He was in the fifty-fifth year of his age and the thirteenth of his reign, and in some traits of character reminded men of his grandfather, the devout Nial of the showers. The bards have celebrated the justice of his judgments, the goodness of his heart, and the comeliness of his brunette-bright face. He left a son of age to succeed him, and who ultimately did become Ardrich, yet the present popularity of Melachlin of Miath triumphed over every other interest, and he was raised to the monarchy, the first of his family who had yet attained that honor. Hugh, the son of Nial, sank for a time into the rank of a provincial prince, before the ascendant star of the captor of Turgesius, and is usually spoken of during this reign as Hugh of Iliac. He is found towards its close, as if impatient of the succession, employing the arms of the common enemy to ravage the ancient Mansal land of the kings of Erin, and otherwise harassing the last days of his successful rival. Melachlin, or Malachy I, sometimes called of the Shannon from his patrimony along that river, brought back again the sovereignty to the center, and in happier days might have become the second founder of Tara. But it was plain enough then, and it is tolerably so still, that this was not to be an age of restoration. The kings of Ireland, after this time, says the quaint old translator of the annals of Clonmachnoise, had little good of it, down to the days of King Brian. It was, in fact, a perpetual struggle for self-preservation, the first duty of all governments, as well as the first law of all nature. The powerful action of the genteel forces upon an originally ill-centralized and recently much-abused constitution seemed to render it possible that every new Ardrich would prove the last. Under the pressure of such a deluge, all ancient institutions were shaken to their foundations, and the venerable authority of religion itself, like a hermit in a mountain torrent, was contending for the hope of escape or existence. We must not, therefore, amid the din of the conflicts through which we are to pass, condemn without stint or qualification those princes who were occasionally driven, as some of them were driven, to the last resort, the employment of foreign mercenaries, and those mercenaries often anti-Christians, to preserve some show of native government and kingly authority. Grant that in some of them the use of such allies and agents cannot be justified on any plea or pretext of state necessity. Where base ends or unpatriotic motives are clear or credible, such treason to country cannot be too heartily condemned. But it is indeed far from certain that such were the motives in all cases, or that such ought to be our conclusion in any, 
in the absence of sufficient evidence to that effect. Though the genteel power had experienced towards the close of the last reign such severe reverses, yet it was not in the nature of the men of Norway to abandon a prize which was once so nearly being their own. The fugitives who escaped, as well as those who remained within the strong ramparts of Waterford and Dublin, urged the fitting out of new expeditions to avenge their slaughtered countrymen and prosecute the conquest. But defeat still followed on defeat. In the first year of Malachy, they lost twelve hundred men in a disastrous action near Castle Dermot, with Alcobar, the prince-bishop of Cashel. And in the same or the next season, they were defeated with the loss of seven hundred men by Malachy at Fork in Meath. In the third year of Malachy, however, a new northern expedition arrived in a hundred and forty vessels, which, according to the average capacity of the longships of that age, must have carried with them from seven thousand to ten thousand men. Fortunately for the assailed, this fleet was composed of what they called black genteels, or Danes, as distinguished from their predecessors, the fair genteels, or Norwegians. A quarrel arose between the adventurers of the two nations as to the possession of the few remaining fortresses, especially of Dublin, and an engagement was fought along the Liffey, which lasted for three days. The Danes finally prevailed, driving the Norwegians from their stronghold, and cutting them off from their ships. The new northern leaders are named Anlaf, or Olaf, Citric, Sigurd, and Ivar, the first of the Danish earls who established themselves at Dublin, Waterford, and Limerick, respectively. Though the immediate result of the arrival of the great fleet of 847 relieved for the moment the worst apprehensions of the invaded, and enabled them to rally their means of defense, Yet, as Denmark had more than double the population of Norway, it brought them into direct collision with a more formidable power than that from which they had been so lately delivered. The tactics of both nations were the same. No sooner had they established themselves on the ruins of their predecessors in Dublin than the Danish forces entered East Meath, under the guidance of Kenneth, a local lord, and overran the ancient Mensal from the sea to the Shannon. One of their first exploits was burning alive two hundred and sixty prisoners in the Tower of Teroit, in the island of Loch Gower, near Dunshoglin. The next year, his allies having withdrawn from the neighborhood, Kenneth was taken by King Malachy's men, and the traitor himself drowned in a sack in the little river Nanny, which divides the two baronies of Dulic. This death penalty by drowning seems to have been one of the useful hints which the Irish picked up from their invaders. During the remainder of this reign, the genteel war resumed much of its old local and guerrilla character, 
the provincial chiefs and the Arderich occasionally employing bands of one nation of the invaders to combat the other, and even to suppress their native rivals. The only pitched battle of which we hear is that of the two plains, near Coolstown, Kings County, in the second last year of Malachi, A.D. 859, in which his usual good fortune attended the king. The greater part of his reign was occupied, as always must be the case with the founder of a new line, in coercing into obedience his former peers. On this business he made two expeditions into Munster, and took hostages from all the tribes of the Eugenian race. With the same object he held a conference with all the chiefs of Ulster, Hugh of Eiliach only being absent, at Armagh in the fourth year of his reign, and a general face or assembly of all the orders of Ireland, at Rathugh in West Meath in his thirteenth year, A.D. 857. He found, notwithstanding his victories and his early popularity, that there are always those ready to turn from the setting to the rising sun, and towards the end of his reign he was obliged to defend his camp near Armagh by force from a night assault of the discontented prince of Eiliach, who also ravaged his patrimony almost at the moment he lay on his deathbed. Malachi I departed this life on the thirteenth day of November, A.D. 860, having reigned sixteen years. "'Mournful is the news to the Gael,' exclaims the elegiac bard. "'Red wine is spilled into the valley. Erin's monarch has died.' And the lament contrasts his stately form as he rode the white stallion, with the striking reverse, when his only horse this day, that is the bier on which his body was borne to the churchyard, is drawn behind two oxen. The restless prince of Eiliach now succeeded as Hugh the Seventh, and possessed the perilous honor he so much coveted for sixteen years, the same span that had been allotted his predecessor. The beginning of this reign was remarkable for the novel design of the Danes, who marched out in great force and set themselves busily to breaking open the ancient mounds in the cemetery of the pagan kings beside the Boyne in hope of finding buried treasure. The three earls, Olaf, Citric, and Ivar, are said to have been present while their gold hunters broke into in succession the mounds-covered cave of the wife of Goban at Drogheda, the cave of the shepherd of Elkmar at Douth, the cave of the field of Aldai at Newgrange, and the similar cave at Noth. What they found in these huge cairns of the old Tuatha is not related, but Roman coins of Valentinian and Theodosius and torques and armlets of gold have been discovered by accident within their precincts, and an enlightened modern curiosity has not explored them in vain in the higher interests of history and science. In the first two years of his reign, 
Hugh the Seventh was occupied in securing the hostages of his suffragans. In the third, he swept the remaining Danish and Norwegian garrisons out of Ulster, and defeated a newly arrived force on the borders of Loch Foyle. The next, the Danish earls went on a foray into Scotland, and no exploit is to be recorded. In his sixth year, Hugh, with one thousand chosen men of his own tribe, and the aid of Sil Murray, O'Connors, of Connaught, attacked and defeated a force of five thousand Danes with their Leinster allies, near Dublin, at a place supposed to be identical with Kiladary. Earl Olaf lost his son, and Erin her Roydamna, or heir apparent, on this field, which was much celebrated by the bards of Ulster and of Connaught. Amongst those who fell was Flan, son of Conaing, chief of the district which included the plundered cemeteries, fighting on the side of the plunderers. The mother of Flan was one of those who composed quite trains on the event of the battle, and her lines are a natural and affecting alternation from joy to grief. Joy for the triumph of her brother and her country, and grief for the loss of her self-willed, warlike son. Olaf, the Danish leader, avenged in the next campaign the loss of his son by a successful descent on Armagh, once again rising from its ruins. He put to the sword one thousand persons, and left the primatial city lifeless, charred, and desolate. In the next ensuing year the monarch chastised the Leinster allies of the Danes, traversing their territory with fire and sword from Dublin to the border town of Garan. This seems to have been the last of his notable exploits in arms. He died on the 20th of November, 876, and is lamented by the bards as a generous, wise, staid man. These praises belong, if at all deserved, to his old age. Flan, son of Malachy I, and surnamed like his father of the Shannon, succeeded in the year 877 of the annals of the Four Masters, or, more accurately, the year 879 of our common era. He enjoyed the very unusual reign of thirty-eight years. Some of the domestic events of his time are of so unprecedented a character and the period embraced is so considerable that we must devote to it a separate chapter. End of Book Two, Chapter Two